You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. And today we're going to talk about something fun and food related and um, and the connection between food and recipes and storytelling and family um, and uh, and podcasting. So uh, with something we're very familiar with. So with me today is Amanda Dell, who is the program director of the Jewish Food Society. And she's also a podcast host herself of Schmaltzy. Uh, so welcome, Amanda. So um, first, you know, tell me a little bit, you know, you're in the hospitality industry and you come from a restaurant background. Um, so tell me a little bit, um, you know, what drew you to the restaurant and hospitality industry? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, Barbara, and that beautiful introduction. I love it. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, yeah, I, long story short is that I... Definitely grew up in a house that that loved food and restaurants. Um, I graduated from college, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, had always kind of been drawn. Really, I knew I wanted to get into media eventually, I think. But um, on a whim, I just really uh, got an interview to be a host at Gramercy Tavern. And um, I had never worked in a restaurant of that caliber before at all. Um, I had, you know, grown up traveling a little bit and, and definitely going to restaurants, um, with my family, my grandmother, who I hope we get to talk about later, um, was a huge fan of restaurants. Um, so I think probably got a little love from, you know, love of restaurants from her, but yeah, it was just, um, it was like no other job I had ever worked. Um, I learned a tremendous amount uh, I didn't think I would catch on in the beginning, but eventually it, you know, everything kind of fell into place and, um, I became a maitre d' at Gramercy Tavern and I worked there for like almost o over five years and it was like the best job I ever had. It was a very specific moment in time and it really instilled my love for restaurants you know, instilled within me a love for restaurants and hospitality um, that I, I've never lost. So how did you then kind of were led to the Jewish Food Society? So I think that I'll, I'll preface that question by saying what is really exciting right now in terms of the people that I worked with at Gramercy and other people at Union Square Hospitality Group, the parent company of Gramercy Tavern, it's very exciting because many of those people are now like the chefs or owners or operators of other restaurants, some in New York, some throughout the country, some in the, you know, in different places in the world. There's someone I worked with at Gramercy Tavern who has like an amazing mini like restaurant empire in Paris. So the, it's our alumni, you know, are really just at the point, the people that I worked with my contemporaries where they're doing their own thing. But I think what happened for me is it came to a certain point as it does for, I think, a lot of restaurant professionals where they have to make a decision. Like, do you want to go further into restaurant management? Do you want to open your own place? Do you want to be, you know, um, an integral part of building something new within the restaurant? Do you see yourself working in restaurants like day in and day out? And 
for me, I know I loved it, but I knew that that wasn't my end game. So I kind of had to, but I really, I really was stuck in because I can't emphasize enough, like what an amazing place at the, you know, at that time, Gramercy Tavern was, you know, was, it still is obviously, but it's whole, you know, it's my experience, I think was unique because it was, um, it was right when Mike Anthony was starting um, and Tom Colicchio had just left and there was a lot of new attention on the restaurant. And there were just like incredible people that I worked with who I'm still friends with now. So um, I just, yeah, I had to kind of figure my way out of that and, and figure out how to stay connected, but also do something different. So I really kind of threw myself into different projects, whether they were like um, helping some people with their books, kind of go out, go approach chefs to get recipes. Um, I worked on, you know, a, a children's coloring book that my friend Andre made where we, where we uh, had to reach out to a lot of chefs to get them involved in the book. And then I started really doing like a lot of freelance events and I kind of had my own small business doing that. And then I, um, eventually became involved with this food media festival called Food Book Fair. And um, when I saw this event, I was like, oh my God, it's everything I love. It's like media, books, um, magazines, and food. So eventually, uh, my business partner and I bought Food Book Fair from its original owner and took it over as our own. And we ran that for several years. Um, it was kind of like a three-day multi-dimensional, multi-experiential <laughs> festival that we did in New York and eventually in LA. So what happened was that I had actually asked Nama, who's the founder of Jewish Food Society, to speak at one of our events. And we stayed in touch. And then eventually I uh, I came to work for Jewish Food Society. So that's the short, long story. <laughs> so what does your role as program director kind of entail? Yeah. Um, great question. <laughs> um, we, we are a women-led small nonprofit organization, but growing, we, um, do, we do a tremendous amount. I'm so proud of the work that we do. Um, the, the biggest things that fall under my purview are really all of our programming. And that could be anything that, you know, ranges from our signature storytelling event, Schmaltzy, which I know we'll talk about, which we have done really all over the world. Um, and it could be also demos in, in the Union Square Green Market. It could be a um, a Passover Seder with the designer, Susan Alexandra. It could be leading a workshop about how people can preserve their own family recipes and stories. Um, and of course, hosting our uh, storytelling podcast, Schmaltzy. I guess, what's the overall mission of the Jewish Food Society? You know, what, you know, what are the ways that, you know, and, and I know that, that you guys did a lot during the pandemic to support the restaurants because you saw, I mean, particularly in New York City, you saw everything that was going on. Um, so I guess let people know, you know, what the Jewish Food Society does, you sure. know, what its goals and its mission is. Yeah, very happy to. Our mission is to preserve, celebrate, and revitalize Jewish culinary heritage from all around the world. And we do that in several ways. The core of our work is we're creating the largest archive of family recipes and histories from around the world. So if you head to jewishfoodsociety.org, you will be met with like beautiful photographs of food, 
and thousands of recipes that we have internally uh, developed if needed, recipe tested. And then um, we write a narrative essay about each family's history and how it relates to the recipes. And then we create all of this photography to kind of you know, honor, but also inspire everyone to, you know, cook and remember what these recipes are, what they mean. Um, so this is really the core of our work is this recipe archive that we are adding to every single week. We oftentimes go into people's homes, we cook with them, we gather this knowledge that's really in danger of being lost. Um, so that's kind of the core of our work. I, I really view Jewish Food Society, although we're a nonprofit, as really a mini media company. So we have our archive, which is the core of our work. We have um, a very engaged newsletter where we share recipes, stories, events, our podcast, really share our work and, and you know, bring that to people's inboxes every week. Um, we have our podcast. We have our events. Um and we have a really strong social media, and we find that that's really also a way to engage with our community that is, uh, you know, it's global. So tell me a little bit about the pandemic experience yeah. and what you guys did to yeah. support yeah. restaurants and kind of, you know, okay. have to figure out what your role was and your position was um, to help out during the pandemic. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Sometimes the pandemic to me seems like it was like yesterday. And then sometimes I'm like, wait, what, what, when was that? Like it's, it, it's the, the brain and the mind is, you know, it's amazing. And it's so complex to really like think back, you know, upon that and, and, and very excited to share, you know, what we did. And, and that was a really completely, you know, complete team effort and amazing initiative, I feel on our part. Um, but restaurants, are also, you know, a huge part of our community. And we feature many restaurateurs on, you know, our archive and collaborate with them, you know, all the time. And, you know, we really feel that they're just, you know, as an integral part of keeping our, you know, our heritage and um, these recipes alive. And it's amazing to have a physical place to go. So we, you know, we often had had the history of, you know, collaborating with so many different restaurants and, and also featuring their own family recipes. And I think what's fun is like getting really personal with some of these restaurateurs and operators that don't normally do that. So for example, like Gabe Stuhlman, he's a restaurant tour here in New York City. Like people know his restaurants. He's extremely talented. They're all really popular and really, really thought out and cool. But a lot of people don't know that he's, you know, of Moroccan heritage. And after Passover, there's like a special holiday called Mimuna that a lot of Moroccan and other North African Jews celebrate where it's like a celebration of the last night of Hanukkah and uh, last night of Passover, excuse me, and being able to eat foods that are leavened. So we like collaborated with Gabe by throwing a Mimuna with his whole family and our community at one of his restaurants. So that gives, it's really like we view rest, you know, we want to get really personal with the people behind restaurants and have it be family related. That was an aside. But when we saw what was going on with the pandemic, I think we all, you know, had this thought of like, what can we do? How can we, you know, do that? And and we saw two needs. One, and this is, yes, yeah, really going back to think about this time, but 
you know, hospital workers were working around the clock and especially here in New York. And so we knew that they had a need to be fed and really like have, you know, healthful, beautiful, bountiful food that could energize them. Um, we know the importance of that. And then we had, you know, our restaurant community, whether that's Russ and Daughters, Gabe Stolman's restaurants, um, our friend BJ Barhani's uh, Ethiopian restaurant in Harlem, um, Katz's Deli. And they, they, we wanted to support them too. So we really just put a lot of resources and fundraised, um, to be able to essentially buy meals from restaurants and deliver them to to hospitals and other places that needed them around the city. So yeah. let's talk about Malti. Yeah. Um, okay, you know, sure. Just, um, you know, some people may not be familiar with the terminology. So um, why the name and, you know, how it connects to what you're trying to do? I love that question. Um, the... The definition of schmaltz is like rendered chicken fat, essentially. So <laughs> no, it doesn't sound that glamorous, <laughs> but um, it's actually really foundational in a lot of Eastern European Jewish cooking. Most often it's chicken fat. It could have also been duck fat because according to, to Jewish kosher law, um, those that are observing kosher law, they don't mix milk and meat when they're eating. So what would happen is that a lot of times recipes that for cooking meat would involve like butter. So that's not kosher. So using something like chicken fat as your fat makes a recipe, can make a recipe kosher. So I think that that was really foundational in terms of a style of Jewish cooking. And so for, for, year for a long time that was really the fat that that many people used to cook with um so schmaltzy <laughs> i don't know if it has like a technical definition i think it's a big play on words and what we hope that that evokes is kind of nostalgia um a wink into you know food and the food world and just sometimes i joke with people like are we going to get schmaltzy today and what I mean by that is just like, are we, are we going to have fun? Are we going to um, talk about our family? Are we going to talk about things that are, um, you know, can be, you know, important, but also um, have, yeah, just really have a playfulness to it. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's adding emotional. Yeah, flavor. It's flavor. Exactly. Because if you're talking butter, it's anything that's adding flavor to the yes. to the mix. Yes. So definitely yes. having a conversation has to have flavor. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, forget about it. So you yeah. started um, a couple of years ago. So what was kind yeah. of the um, you know the decision to move forward and to try and to try podcasting? Yeah. It actually goes back to the pandemic. So pre-pandemic the only schmaltzy that we did was our live storytelling series. So that was like typically hundreds of people would come to our event. We would have five stories. People would, leaders in our community, like Jake Dell from Katz's, um, this incredible baker, Zoe Kanan, um, writers, grandmas, they would take the stage and tell a live a very personal story about a food. And then afterwards, everyone together would eat the food. 
So it was kind of like a multi-dimensional, multi-experiential event. And that was really kind of as much as we thought about it, honestly, because we had been asked to come to Tel Aviv. We had been asked to come to the West Coast. We were thinking about how we could grow this, you know, live series that people really loved. Cut to the pandemic that really wasn't uh, possible anymore. So we were really thinking about it and we just realized like we had recorded these stories and they were audio gold. Um, And so just, you know, in a very, very modest way, we started to revisit on the podcast these live stories that had been told at previous events and then do this interview with the storytellers kind of about their story as a jumping off point, but really about, you know, bigger themes that are more universal, identity, love, loss, family. Um, So that is really what the, the, the pandemic really was the catalyst to move Schmalti from like a live event series into the podcast. Um, and we've continued that. So we're now in a really like amazing cycle of getting to do these live events where, you know, 100, 200, 300 people can come and experience it live. And then we then bring that story and that talent to the podcast. It's really fun. Best of both worlds. Yeah. Yes. We're, we're finally at a place where we can do that. Yeah. We had a lot of stops and starts and different, you know, things that we tried, but um, stories, I think, are, they're really, um, you know, our cultural DNA. And um, it's so powerful to really hear a very personal story from someone that you might know, you know, in one way, and you get to, you know, experience them in another way. So tell me about some of the conversations you've had, some of the guests who've been on the podcast, um, and, you know, some of the things that you've learned from them about listening to their stories and and their memories and their, you know, it, you know, it's a different kind of interview. Usually, you know, particularly when you talk, when you, you know, famous people, um, you know, they're talking, they're promoting a movie or a book or something, you know, but this is a different kind of conversation with them. So you get to know, know them on a more personal level. Yes. I, it's been such a privilege to talk to so many incredible people. Um, our season finale from this season was with the extremely talented Alana Glazer, um, someone that I've looked up to and admired for so long. Um, and, you know, leading up to it, I actually, I had a little bit of a different idea of, you know, what our conversation was going to be about. I thought we were going to laugh a lot, which we did. Um, But, you know, I kind of had like specific episodes of like Broad City picked out that I wanted to talk about. Um, And I guess I, I wasn't surprised, but I definitely had to rethink some of my questions because Alana was just so thoughtful and so intelligent and really we we talked about you know family but but and food but she also wanted you know to talk about um how how conflicted sometimes she feels you know as a jew and what being jewish you know means to her and her family in 2023 and how that's changed and how one topic I love to talk about is is how Jews are being represented in the media, you know, currently, and 
how that's changing and shifting. So we definitely had some laughs, but she was, you know, really brought a very, very different perspective, I think, to the conversation than I had initially thought. Um, I, I absolutely loved the story and talking to Jake Dell from Katz's. Um, we share the same last name. We're not related. We talked about it. Um, you know, because his story was really about um, thinking that for his whole life, he was going to become a doctor. Um, it was what he trained for. It was like he spent his, he was like right about to go to medical school. And he spent, you know, one night, oh, sorry, one summer working at Katz's and then decided like, okay, I'm totally chucking that part of everything I've worked for. And I'm going to now take over the family business. And, you know, really what we talked about a lot was, you know, parental expectations. I think that that's something that's universal. Um, speaking of the restaurant business, like a decision like that to go into the business, I think this might come up in a lot of your conversations is that I think for, you know, families whose parents or grandparents immigrated here, like they, they don't want their children to go into the restaurant business. Um, so, you know, we, and we, we talked about the inherent tension of, of being a younger person coming into a restaurant business. That's, a, that's very much, you know, an institution um, and how to keep that, but also bring modern innovation, you know, to the business. Um, we had this amazing story this season uh, from really an art curator. His name is Marc Azoulay, who works for the French artist JR. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. It's like these huge, like a lot of them are typically like very large scale photo installations. Um, and he got asked to to come work at a maximum security prison with inmates to do an art project. And um, he arrived at the prison. Mark is, is uh, Moroccan, French, Jewish. And um, the first person that chose to be in his group had a swastika tattoo on their cheek. <laughs> and um, he told an incredible story about how he was really able to see beyond that with this person and um, form a relationship. And you know, it ended with uh, this person coming to a Shabbat dinner at Mark's home. So it's, you know, people really were so grateful to, again, have these really personal and dynamic and impactful stories that I think on some level, everyone can relate to, Jewish or not. So are there any Anyone on your like go-to guest that you definitely would love to speak to that you haven't had a chance to yet? Sure. Yes. Um, <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Um, I would, it's funny, this, this person is someone that came up um, in my Alana interview. It's a, it's a comedian and creator of this show called Rami. His name's Rami Youssef and he's, he's not Jewish, but he, what, he has this incredible show called Rami. And in the last season, they actually like went to Israel and he did quite a few episodes around that. He, to be able to sit down and talk to him would be like definitely, um, you know, one of my dreams. Um, oh, this is such a good question. I had so many people, but I need to, okay, here's one I would love 
Andy Cohen. Okay. Do you know him from Bravo? Sure. Uh, Bravo, yeah. He, yeah. He, I would, I don't know if you, if, if anyone's listening, Rami, Andy, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's just, there's, there's so many to, to choose from, but um, yeah, those are the, those are the two that come, to, I mean, somewhat, you know, speaking to a Claudia Rodin, who is kind of like the, the absolute queen and, you know, um, someone who really opened the doors in terms of Jewish food um, and writing about it and doing that in such a methodical, um, elevated way. You know, she really, really set the stage um, for bringing, you know, Jewish food and history into the conversation. She is always will be a forever you know, um, hero for Jewish food. And I think about her all the time and we always reference her books the most in the office. So if we have a question, we're always like, okay, did we look at Claudia? Right. <laughs> like, what is she thinking about? It's really, it's endless. Um, there's just so many people doing really, really amazing work and that I would love to, you know, get a little schmaltzy with. <laughs> so what kind of feedback do you receive from your listeners? Um, <laughs> well, my mom always messages me. <laughs> um, and I actually value her perspective because she, she's not, she doesn't, she doesn't, um, she really like, she listens to the conversation at face value. What and what I mean by that is like, she oftentimes doesn't typically know a lot of the people that I interview. Um, I think that the, the best feedback that that we get is really when someone says to me, I didn't know that about this person or thank you for asking, you know, that question or I never thought about X, Y and Z in that way. Um, but getting to hear this really, you know, hear this person in a really intimate way helped me. And and, and the and the biggest thing that I, I really always try to go for and what I love when I can get feedback that reflects this is, is again, something that's universal, like Jewish, not everyone has some relationship to, to family, to identity, to love, to expectations, to loss. Um, and so I just, I really, my goal is to receive feedback always where people can feel like they have related in some way to either the story or what we talked about and they can see themselves there. So earlier in the conversation, you had mentioned your grandmother. So I wanted to circle back. Um, so, you know, what, what is your stories? You know, how do, how do you connect um, with recipes and family and the history? Um, you know, and you mentioned your grandmother, so I'm assuming there's yeah. some kind of, you know, a connection between yeah. the two of you and, and, and food. Um, so what can you share, um, that yeah. kind of would yeah. be a schmaltzy episode, but you know, um, you know, in a little way, what it, what is it that you can share? Oh, that, I only that wish my grandmother together. were still here yeah. and I could interview her in the way that I, I do other people. Um, yeah, well, on, on one side of my family, um, it's, it's actually very interesting. I grew up culturally Jewish, but in a completely unreligious way. 
Um, and I think we find that in a lot of our research at Jewish Food Society is, is that fam, you know, women from my grandmother's generation often went one of two ways. When they were in the U.S., they either they kind of doubled down and became more religious. And that was really like their identity that they held on to, or they really wanted to essentially become American. And for them, that meant kind of leaving religion behind um, and becoming more secular. And I definitely think that that was the case. They wanted to assimilate. And that I think was the case for my grandmother. She was an extremely unique person. Um, she she definitely wasn't interested in cooking. She loved food um, with gusto, and she loved like East, you know, the food of her people, like Eastern European, like Second Avenue Deli. She loved Rustenar. She loved all of it. She was really kind of ahead of her time. Like she went to college, which was almost unheard of for someone of her age and generation, you know, in New York. And she was most interested in, in really um, going out and culture. And she loved going to the theater and traveling. And so I really learned a lot of that, you know, from her. Um, so again, yeah, it was really interesting. During the pandemic, we did a, like a, an online series called Tradish, where we asked people in our community what to just share a very, very simple comfort recipe. So I kind of had to think for a second because, you know, my grandmother took care of us, my sister and I, like a lot growing up. And I re definitely remember her like making things, certain things for us all the time, um, but nothing really, <laughs> nothing really truly remarkable. But like I thought about it a lot and I thought about the things that my dad makes for me, which he is a very talented cook. Um, and there was like this paprika potato recipe that kind of came out of the mix. And my dad and I made it together during the pandemic. And that's what I shared. And that's something that definitely I remember my grandmother making, my dad making, I make it. And so it's, it was way, much more simple food that she would cook because for her, she, she wasn't interested in, in being in the kitchen. Well, my other side of the family, my mom's side of the family, actually, my, my great uncle just turned 102. Um, and he lives in Peter Cooper. And so from that side of the family, we have a truly epic, I think, story on the archive about a recipe for a turkey cooked in a paper bag. And this is like the signature recipe of that side of the family, I would say. Um, it might have come from like a Hadassah or like other magazine of the time that my grandmother on my mother's side would have had. But cooking a turkey in a paper bag is something that has been done since I can remember. And it's a recipe from my grandmother, my great uncle's sister. And since she's no longer with us, he was interviewed for, for the piece on our archive um, talking about our family history. So on both sides, I'm a New Yorker. So I'm, I'm a third generation New Yorker and both sides were all four of my grandparents were born in New York. So I think before anything, family and recipe and identity wise, we would consider ourselves New Yorkers. And, you know, during this project, during the pandemic, do you think that you feel 
closer to your family, you know, through kind of coming up with the recipes and, you know, and making that connection? Does it does it feel like you're that you're now part of that same history? Wow, what a beautiful question. Um, Yes, I think that I have been like so just overwhelmed with emotion thinking about how important it is to carry on these recipes. Um, and it wasn't, wouldn't have been something I would have thought of before. I think, and even as something as simple as this like potato dish, it, it started a conversation between my family, even though my dad and I talk about food all the time, we talked about it in, in a different way. And I think that the work that we're doing is so important because these stories and even the recipes are, they can just disappear into thin air. And the work that we, you know, the and sure, like I have a younger sister and now I have a nephew and maybe some of these stories will get passed on or the, a recipe or two. But taking the time to actually write it out, do the work, interview your family members, um, that is something that I'm just so, you know, incredibly proud of. And I've seen a new importance for, um, yeah, it's, it's very fun. Like, as I said, I grew up in it. I really didn't, you know, grow up, um, in a religious way at all, but now sometimes it's, it's, it's really fun to celebrate Shabbat and invite my family, you know, for dinner and start new traditions. Um, and so that's, I'm also very, you know, inspired by that. So, you know, there are some, I guess, misconceptions about Jewish food. Um, so, you know, how do you think what you're doing kind of helps kind of combat that? Yes. It, w w the work that we're doing at Jewish Food Society 100% opened my eyes to what Jewish food is and what it can be. I think that that growing up in New York, I had a very, very narrow view of what Jewish food was. And it's Ashkenazi, Eastern European. I think we kind of know what most people think of as Jewish food, like bagels, you know, lox, um, brisket, matzo ball soup, gefilte fish. And those things are all great. And we have them on the archive. But really what, what I've learned and what we hope to do, you know, at Jewish Food Society is really, really share and present a global perspective of Jewish food. So Jews lived all and live all over the world and have kind of created their own micro cuisines based on the region that they were living in, plus kind of adhering to kosher laws and changing, you know, some of those, those foods around. And we, there are, there's so many, um, different types of Jewish food. There's like Iranian Jewish food. There is, we just published today, um, a recipe from the Baghdadi Jewish community, which actually has, have, they have roots in Iraq, but actually moved to India. So these recipes are a melting pot of Iraqi traditions, Indian traditions, and also now that the family lives in London. So um, we want everyone to know Jewish food can be seasonal. It can be vibrant. It can, it's of course, delicious. And I think some of them, one way that's a really interesting um, aspect to think about is something like um, that goes back to a very traditional dish that all that many communities around the world have eaten. Like for those who are observant of Shabbat, they don't cook 
um, on Friday night or Saturday, you know, to observe. So, they, sorry, after, you know, after Shabbat, they won't cook on Saturday. So they oftentimes make overnight dishes that they had originally put in communal ovens to cook all through the night so that they would have something to eat on Saturday. So in in the Ashkenazi world, that's called chalant. And it's like a meat stew, typically like with beans. But a lot of the like Sephardic Jewish community has something called dafina. It's the same idea. It's like an overnight one patu. There is something called tabit, which is um, Iraqi Jewish. And it's, it's the same idea. So you have all of these Jewish communities living all over the world. And they each have created, you know, their own, as I said, micro cuisines, but also have many unifying factors that bring them together. Um, and that's been so eye-opening for me to learn. And every day I'm, I, I still learn more. So where do you hope to kind of take this day in, over the next few years? Everywhere. Um, <laughs> well, we have some very exciting things in the pipeline, which I can't talk about yet. But um, really what we would love to do is um, go to more cities, go to more countries, cook with more grandparents um, more great grandparents capture, you know, these recipes and this knowledge and really make Jewish food society, as we call ourselves, the home for Jewish food from all around the world. And for Schmaltzy, I would just love to um, keep creating and having stories from, you know, the most dynamic and impactful people in our community and tell stories from, you know, younger people older people, people who aren't Jewish, um, just really um, continue this effort of storytelling that um, we found, you know, to just be really, um, it's like really emotional and it's really, um, it's really something that unites everyone. So yeah, you can, you know, continue to find us. We're often in the Union Square Green Market for everyone, you know, in New York. Uh, you can find us there, do, you know, dem doing demos of recipes from our archive. We also, I will share, Barbara, we um, we have a partner organization in Tel Aviv. It's called ASIF, Culinary Institute of Israel. Um, and that's an actual physical center um, on Lil and Bloom Street in Tel Aviv, where we have a culinary lending, li you know, library, reference library. We have an exhibition space with really incredible rotating exhibitions. We have a cafe. Um, so it's very exciting to see, you know, a Asif grow as well. Um, and I would really highly encourage anyone who's, you know, visiting Tel Aviv to visit and or check out their website, um, which has, you know, incredible stories, recipes, photo essays. Perfect. Thank you so much.